Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm delighted today to be joined again by Cheryl Gay Stolberg. Cheryl, thank you so much for coming over and making time to be with us. I'm happy to be here. Cheryl is the New York Times Washington correspondent on health policy and politics. We've been doing a series of conversations with Washington-based journalists recently, Dan Diamond from Washington Post, Helen Bransfield State. It's turned out to be a great moment to begin to reflect on a number of different top-line issues that we're experiencing here. I want to start today with you, Cheryl. You've written a lot about one year into the post-Dobbs world, one year after the Roe versus Wade decision was overturned, at what some of the aftershocks and political implications could be. And you focused in a recent piece on the right to contraception. One of the things that seemed to come out of that article is that certain topics get muddled or conflated with abortion, and it can lead to all sorts of political dynamics that follow from that. Tell us a bit about what you learned in looking at the right to contraception and that movement and what this has meant one year into Dobbs. So that movement got kind of a scare and a boost at the same time from the Dobbs decision, because in the Dobbs decision, Justice Thomas said that the decision they had reached in Dobbs, which basically they said there was no right to privacy contained within the penumbras of the Constitution, that that decision also applied to other precedents, including the 1965 Supreme Court case of Griswold versus Connecticut, which established the right of married couples to have access to contraception. And then over time, that right broadened. But Justice Thomas said that case should be revisited. And obviously, this was a bit of a jolt to people who work at organizations like Planned Parenthood or other reproductive rights groups and women themselves. So there's a push now to try to codify that right, enshrine it in law at both the federal and state level. So let's talk a bit about that. The national level, there was some legislative action. Edward Markey and Kathy Manning, that didn't go very far. And we want to talk a bit about why that got stalled out in the House in particular. But then at the state level, it's been very interesting mixed sort of set of outcomes of what's happened at the state level, which is where we generally seem to think that a more conservative-dominated politics will prevail. But in this instance, that's not been the pattern. But let's start with what happened in Congress. So what happened in Congress was, like you said, Ed Markey and Kathy Manning put forth a bill that would codify the right to contraception. They did this last session, and in the House, Republicans 
blocked it, voted it down. And the reason was a very interesting reason. The Susan B. Anthony Foundation, which opposes abortion rights, said it was going to score this vote, meaning it was going to keep track of how lawmakers voted and publicize the vote as part of its rating system. And if you're a Republican, you want to have a 100% anti-abortion rating with Susan B. Anthony. So, What's the logic by which Susan B. Anthony connected a right for contraception to support of abortion? That's a good question. I would say that some abortion opponents take issue with certain types of contraception, not with contraception per se, but with, for instance, emergency contraception, Plan B, which is given you know, after sexual relations to prevent pregnancy. Some groups also take issue with IUDs, intrauterine devices. They say that these devices could be abortifacients, quote unquote, by preventing the implantation of a fertilized egg. Medical experts say that is actually not the case with IUDs. And recently, the FDA revisited and revised its labeling on Plan B to state that Plan B is not an abortifacient, that it doesn't prevent implantation right. of a fertilized egg. So, But suffice it to say, that's enough for some groups like Susan B. Anthony to weigh in. And on top of that, they argued that it was a violation of religious freedom. Some states allow pharmacists or others to not prescribe or provide birth control based on religious freedoms. The Markey-Manning bill would have basically overridden those state provisions, mm -hmm. and anti-abortion groups don't like that. So one consequence of Dobbs is that topics that are adjacent to abortion or have some linkage in some way come under greater scrutiny by groups like Susan B. Anthony, which can draw a connection, and that can be shaping the voting patterns in the House or elsewhere. Right. I mean, I think that that, you know, that was the case before Dobbs. You may remember back when Plan B was approved, there was a big, you know, hullabaloo about it and was it abortion, et cetera. But I think Dobbs, through Justice Thomas's concurrence, really kind of put a fine point on that and, and drew that connection ever closer. The outcome seemed to be at the state level very, very mixed. We've got 13 states plus the District of Columbia, which guarantee the right of contraception. There's, as you point out in your writing, I think there are five states that in this next cycle are going to test in the legislatures whether they can move forward a right. Was the threat to contraception in retrospect exaggerated? In other words, you said there was the fear. Judge Thomas's remarks spiked that fear, but there was also a bounce in terms of the, the mobilization to defend these rights. Right. There was definitely a bounce. And even people who are in the reproductive rights advocacy world will tell you that there's what they call a believability gap, that some people don't believe the right to contraception is at risk. So their argument to that is, well, look at Roe. For years, nobody thought the abortion right would ever be overturned. And now we're in a position where it has been. So some people have said to me, we're through asking the what if question. We're moving forward as if this right is under threat because we've seen what can happen when we're complacent. Now we're seeing some of this phenomenon in the case of 
some of our international policies. PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, 20-year-old program, very successful, highly regarded, very bipartisan in its support. It's drawn support from the evangelical movement, from the U.S. Catholic Bishops Conference, from President Bush, from implementers, from uh, AIDS activists and the like. Very broad coalition, very bipartisan. It's up for reauthorization uh, every five years. And this has gotten entwined in a debate around abortion. This isn't the first time that's happened. You yourself were covering this program in 2008. I went back and read one of your pieces in the January of 2008 as it was approaching its five-year mark. Right. I went to Africa with President Bush. It was his program. It's a huge legacy item for President Bush. And that program has saved millions of lives in Africa through point, AIDS prevention and treatment. And at that point, you said, you know, this program is probably the most impressive and enduring bipartisan achievement of President Bush's two two terms in office. I would still say that. I was going to ask you. Are you yes, still say? I, I absolutely, absolutely, millions of lives saved around the world. Um, it's our biggest foreign. Commitment. It's our biggest commitment to foreign aid. $110 billion. Yeah. And it always has been bipartisan, this sort of unlikely coalition of people on the left with Christian conservatives that President Bush managed to bring those groups together despite the conservative Christian view of homosexuality, which certainly colored the federal response to HIV AIDS in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was president. Um, you know, Bush managed to circumvent those things and also to circumvent any opposition or any abortion politics. He managed to thread that needle and get this yes. program approved. And it's just marked its 20 year anniversary. So now it's become entwined in debate over whether PEPFAR espouses and supports abortion, even while under U.S. law, it's strictly forbidden from spending any any funds for abortion. What's going on in this instance? Well, it's hard to say. Representative Chris Smith, who is a New Jersey Republican and a fierce uh, anti-abortion leader, championed the reauthorization of PEPFAR five years ago. But now he is saying that he will not vote for reauthorization. He won't back renewal of this program unless the organizations that participate essentially sign a pledge promising not to promote or, you know, perform abortions. That's a red line for Democrats. That's they, basically reintroducing Mexico City policy. That's right? exactly what it is. That's exactly right. And that's a non-starter for Democrats. And the fact of the matter is, as you yourself said, federal dollars are not allowed to be used to you know, promote or provide abortions anywhere in this country or overseas. But what some of these participating organizations do is use other money to provide abortions. And that's what Chris Smith is trying to get at. And he is also saying that, you know, the Biden administration is using this to, this program, PEPFAR, to promote abortion. It's hard to tell whether this is just playing politics or what's guiding him. I haven't talked to him. I reached out to him last week. Congress was out last week. So I haven't talked to him, but I, I would like to hear more from him on why. What's the change of heart five years later? Well, we are in the Dobbs era, right? There's We're in the second year. So there is a 
uh, an inclination and incentives out there politically to find another battlefield, another battleground around abortion rights. And he's, as you point out, very passionate about this. He's also been a stalwart supporter of PEPFAR. So he has some leverage in this. What's interesting also is that there was a letter with 21 anti-abortion groups on it that was raising many of these same concerns. There was a letter from 131 African church figures, parliamentarians, and others echoing this. Heritage Foundation has gotten involved through two people there who use the Heritage platform for this. It's gotten into the cable news networks and the like. So it's out there as a, as a very public issue set. And there is the threat that Susan B. Anthony, as we talked about with a rights bill for uh, contraception, that Susan B. Anthony may score a vote in favor of PEPFAR reauthorization as a anti-abortion vote. Yeah, that is a real threat with a House controlled by Republicans. And, you know, the program's 20 years old. If you saw the Heritage paper on it, I think it said something like, it's time to take a fresh look. And by framing it that way, you know, they might draw in people who might not otherwise be interested and who might look at this and say, well, we are spending a lot of money here. And, you know, it's been 20 years and the AIDS epidemic has changed. And, you know, maybe we should take a fresh look. And that, you know, that signals trouble for this program. If it doesn't get reauthorized, it will continue with its current funding levels, but it lacks the imprimatur of Congress. And that's big. That's you and know, it's sig- it would send negative signals to our partners overseas absolutely. about the permanence of the program yes. and the longevity and yes, sustainability. It would. I mean, one thing that you mentioned, I want to emphasize, which is, you know, the Biden administration, one year into Dobbs, is of course fiercely committed to defending sexual and reproductive rights, and it's part of the presidential campaign, right? And it's a dominant theme, so it becomes embedded in almost every policy document, right? So you have language that's there. So when critics or skeptics or those who are concerned there may be violations look at some of the policy documents, they see language that that upsets them. That may not mean that there's been any infraction because, you know, if money were spent under PEPFAR, that would be subject to penalties and investigations, right? Yeah. You know, I think that's a part of it that Biden is really campaigning on reproductive rights. We saw during the midterms last year what a powerful issue that was for Democrats. We're seeing polling now that shows a majority, a clear majority of Americans support the right to abortion. You know, the Dobbs decision was what some Republicans had hoped for and longed for for years, decades. And it turned out to be a huge problem for them. So now you're right. Abortion politics does. It is kind of laying over all of our conversations. It's casting a shadow, I guess, on all of our political conversations. But beyond that, we're just in this super partisan era now where everything, it seems, is subject to partisan bickering and fighting, and it's really hard to get bipartisan support for anything. I'll be interested in seeing like what happens with the defense reauthorization. You know, that's always been bipartisan. Are we going to have fighting over the, you know, National Defense Authorization Act this year? Well, just to close on the PEPFAR reauthorization, 
There's a couple of other things that I think have shaped some of this debate that's ongoing. And, you know, the outcome's not clear yet, right? I mean, hopefully there's a positive outcome. They resolve. Chris Smith's concerns are answered in a sufficient fashion. The U.S. Catholic Bishops Conference reaffirmed their support. The National Association of Evangelicals reaffirmed their support. And we're able to move forward in the leadership, the Republican leadership in House and Senate or stand behind this. That would be a good – there is a pathway to success, It's but it's uncertain and, and, and it's a bit fragile, but let's stay hopeful. COVID disrupted things significantly, and, and in particular, you know, you think about Deborah Burks was the PEPFAR coordinator. She was the director of the program and the ambassador at large for global health diplomacy, but she left that position on March 3rd of 2020 to go over to the White House and direct the COVID. She was ostensibly still in charge of PEPFAR, but – Really, there was no time for anything but COVID. Yes. I mean, in reality. In reality. Uh, Anjali Ashrakar, a very able acting coordinator, stood in for that period. But it was without strong leadership in that period. And then, of course, there was a gap between the end of uh, the Trump administration and John and Kengazong's confirmation and and arriving in office, which was in June of 2022. So there was a 27-month period where you didn't have strong leadership there. And that was the same period in which, you know, the program was getting a little older. Members of Congress who were familiar with all of this were, you know, becoming fewer and fewer. The program was getting older. And then we have Dobbs strike, which created a new political environment. So I think those are factors that we shouldn't be that surprised that there's some challenge coming forward right now, I guess, is my point. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think our attention has turned also when you think about global health problems. Back in 2003, when PEPFAR was created, what was the world's most pressing global health problem? It was AIDS. It was HIV AIDS. You know, we've just come off a three-year pandemic where we've seen what an infectious disease threat can do to an unprepared citizenry and an unprepared country. And our thinking about global health has reoriented toward pandemic preparedness. So there may be some of that going on too. And of course, when President Bush established PEPFAR, people were dying. Whole generations in Africa were being wiped out. There were AIDS orphans. I mean, nobody was getting drugs that were available in the United States. Nobody in Africa or in poor developing nations or very few people were getting these drugs. And it seemed unconscionable. And he cast it as a moral issue. And that's how he got conservatives to come along. He cast it as an issue of, you know, we have an obligation that these drugs are out there. And, you know, people said at the time, you'll never get them there. They don't have refrigeration. How will, you know, they'll be too expensive. People won't know how to take them. All of these kind of paternalistic, almost colonial attitudes. And PEPFAR proved all of those naysayers wrong. You know, these African nations and nations in in Asia and elsewhere, you know, they got the drugs to the people. People knew how to take them. And, you know, it was literally like Lazarus, you know, coming back to life. And those memories are fading. But what's in the recent memory is COVID and the pandemic. So I'm happy also to learn, you know, the President Bush and the Bush Presidential Center have remained quite active on this. Well, Debbie Burks is is a senior fellow there now. Let's shift. You recently wrote 
on changes in leadership in the Biden administration at the helm of both the NIH and the CDC. We've also had Tony Fauci retire, so there's been a, a vacancy there with the head of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, which is a very important institute there. We've had changes with uh, Rochelle Walensky stepping down at CDC, a new person, Mandy Cohen, coming forward, Monica Bertagnoli nominated to head NIH. Tell us a bit about what these appointments reveal about the White House's decision processes and what kind of leadership they're looking for. Well, I thought the CDC appointment was really interesting, Mandy Cohen. She was the health secretary in North Carolina during the pandemic, and she really managed to bring together people on the left and the right. North Carolina did very well, and she she was kind of a, a model for a bipartisan pandemic response. I, I say that with some pause because it's ridiculous that a pandemic should be partisan or bipartisan or nonpartisan at all. But nonetheless, she managed to bring together red and blue there. And, I, and she ran an agency, a big agency there, one that, in fact, has, I think, more employees than the CDC because her agency also oversaw five psychiatric hospitals. I see. So... I think the Biden administration looked at Rochelle Walensky and with Mandy Cohen tried to pick someone who had some qualities that Rochelle Walensky didn't have. Walensky hadn't run a major organization. She hadn't had experience in Washington. Mandy Cohen has had experience in Washington. She worked, I think, for CMS. She was the chief of staff and chief operating officer. Right, under Obama. Yeah, under Obama. I think Obama. she might have also worked in the department in early Clinton days, or she worked on the Hill during that time period. But suffice to say, she has experience running a big organization. She has experience in Washington, and she's demonstrated that she can work across the aisle. So I think that those things were really driving that appointment. What about Monica Bertignoli? Well, you may have seen that Bernie Sanders has vowed he's going to put a hold on her appointment until the Biden administration produces a plan to lower prescription drug prices. So this is very, it's surprising in one sense, but in another sense, it's not surprising. It's just Bernie, you know, exercising his power, his authority, his leverage. You know, this is something that's important to him. And He's got a perch from which he can, you know, do more than speak out. He can actually cause the administration some pain. And he's never been, you know, beholden to Joe Biden. He has always been his own guy. So I don't know. We'll see. You know, we'll see what happens there. I mean, I think that the Biden administration thought it would be really easy to confirm her because she's director of the National Cancer Institute. So I think she's, you know, already a familiar figure to members of Congress. But I don't know what's going to happen but with that. But things are stalled out. There's been a changeover at the White House. You know, uh, Ashish Jha has departed. They have not stood up this office that was mandated at the White House under the omnibus spending bill. That's not happened. There's no one appointed I know, there. I knew I was coming here today, Steve. So I actually sent the White House an email saying, hey, <laughs> what's going on with this office? You know, they did appoint General Paul Friedrichs to be the senior director at the NSC for Global Health Security, Biodefense. He was previously Surgeon General at the Joint Staff. Very competent. That was a great appointment. So it's not like that they've emptied out their their talent and leadership, but there is a gap. And still no uh, replacement for Tony Fauci. Why the slowness? Why the, why the slow pace in moving forward in this way? Certainly with respect to Fauci, I wouldn't want to be the person who had to follow 
Tony Fauci. I think it's going to be very hard to find a replacement for him. Whoever replaces him is going to be under a lot of scrutiny simply because he was under a lot of scrutiny. So his by his presence, he kind of elevated that job. And, you know, I'm, I'm not privy to their search. I don't know who they're looking at. Um, I had heard at one point that they were hopeful that a woman might fill that position. You know, sometimes in Washington, there's like no secret reason as to why things move slowly. They just move slowly. And it may not be top priority right now for, you know, for the president. It's interesting that Tony Fauci, who left at the end of the year, early in the year, retired, has now been appointed as university professor at Georgetown, which is a great honor, and that's terrific. When you look at the political environment, you've got RFK Jr. running for president in the Democratic Party. He wrote an entire book vilifying Tony Fauci as, as the lead conspirator in a grand conspiracy that RFK Jr. fashioned. DeSantis, in his book, dedicated an entire chapter to vilifying Fauci and has made Fauciism and the like one of his two or three dominant themes of his presidential campaign. Right. So poor Tony Fauci, he cannot avoid being in the airwaves coming out of multiple directions here in this kind of conspiracy-rich environment. Although with with respect to RFK Jr., I mean, yes, he has a Democratic family pedigree, but his appeal is to Republicans and independents, if he has any appeal at all. Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's former, you know, senior advisor, is thrilled and was, you know, egging RFK Jr. on. So and I just talked to a longtime Republican strategist the other day who was telling me, oh, yeah, you know, people he knows are like really excited about RFK Jr. I I don't think RFK Jr. is going to get many votes in a Democratic primary. I, I would be surprised. Well, some of the early polls, which have them up to 17, 20 percent, are very early polls and it's name recognition. Yeah, it's name recognition. It's name recognition. But he does, you know, in his early, he's raised a bunch of money. He's got a platform for that. He's also gotten a lot of support at some of the fundraisers around the country from old line Democrats who are lining up, who are moneyed who are coming forward and hosting him. So it's not entirely an appeal on a populist basis mm-hmm. to independents or to Republicans or the cynical side of associating yourself with Tucker Carlson and, and Stephen yeah, Bannon. I just haven't, maybe I haven't been listening closely enough, but I haven't heard much from him about sort of traditional democratic priorities like a living wage or education or racial equity, all of those things that his family stood for, that his uncles and his father stood for, social justice. No, his central theme is he wants to be elected to battle the corruption that he sees that bonds the state with corporate power. Exactly. And that's what he wants to attack. Exactly. And And that grows out of his work as an environmental lawyer. So you can kind of see a straight line there. And certainly, you know, Democrats are associated with environmental causes. And that's, I suspect, how he came to that line of work. But even if he does get 17 to 20 percent of the vote, I mean, it's not enough to win a primary. No, 
Yeah. I raised this mostly because of the Fauci link. I mean, he wrote that book a few years ago. Yes. And in fact, interestingly, the Republican strategist that I was talking to the other day, who was saying to me, you know, that his friends were all agog over RFK Jr., said to me, have you read his book on Fauci? You've got to read it. So I am going to read it. Okay. Let's talk in closing here about the reporting environment. The public health emergency ended May 11th. WHO's ended the global emergency. We're in the process of the great unwinding of the $4.6 trillion. What's that meant for you in practice as a reporter? It's meant for me that I can widen my lens a little bit, a lot, actually, and write about some of these issues that you raised. I wrote that piece about contraception that we talked about. I wrote a piece about RFK Jr. and his spreading of vaccine misinformation. I'm able to work on stories about drug pricing, which we just talked about, and PEPFAR, you know, all of these things that might have been going on during COVID, but that emergency when it was when we were really in the thick of it was just so all-consuming that other stuff kind of just fell by the wayside. What are some of the big issues that you're hoping to be able to tackle looking ahead in the next year or two? So, well, actually, all of those things that we just yes. talked about are things that I'm <laughs> are things that I'm working on uh, right now. Issues of drug pricing, the Medicare drug pricing negotiations is going to be really big. So that's President Biden's signature achievement, the Inflation Reduction Act. It, for the first time since the enactment of Medicare Part B, allows the government to negotiate drug prices with Medicare. The pharmaceutical industry is angry about this. They are so far four laws. Suits have been filed, and I'm I'm told by the someone inside the administration that they are in fact expecting more lawsuits to be filed to try to undo these provisions, either by having them declared unconstitutional or, you know, in some other fashion. So I think that you know that's really important, especially going into the presidential campaign, because drug prices are a huge issue for for so many people. And President Biden is going to be talking about that. So just to clarify, in September, which is not that far yes. off, the administration will announce the first 10 drugs, which will be subject to negotiations. That's the right. negotiations don't begin for a while. Though. That's exactly right. The negotiations don't begin for a while, and not till 2026 will we see drugs on the Medicare formulary whose price is negotiated. The pharmaceutical industry has the opportunity to not participate in negotiations. They say this is a forced negotiation, that it's a price setting, that it's a quote unquote taking of their property. The government says, hey, you know, you guys, nobody says you have to negotiate with us. You don't have to sell your drugs to Medicare. You can sell them elsewhere. So the list will be published. And that list, I should say, is the 10 top selling drugs, the drugs for which Medicare is paying the most money will form that list. And then the talks will start and we'll see how that goes. Do we think this is going to go to the Supreme Court in terms of challenges? Yes. I mean, the legal experts that I'm talking to say yes, because two drug companies, Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb, have filed suits mm -hmm. seeking to have the these provisions declared unconstitutional. Pharma, the Industry Trade Association, has filed suit, and so has the Chamber of Commerce. And all of these suits are... 
They're very similar. They make overlapping claims, and they're filed in different federal courts around the country, four federal courts. So as they work their way through and probably get up to the circuit level with appeals, if there are conflicting rulings, it would have to go to the Supreme Court. That seems to be the industry strategy, to generate conflicting rulings that will have to be settled by the highest court. And this issue is going to be prominent in the presidential debates, right? Yeah, it will. It will. And it's, you know, it's not a great issue for for Republicans. Uh, it's a really strong issue for Democrats. Because of popular discontent. Right. And we saw even President Trump was pushing to lower drug prices. So it's really hard for Republicans to argue against a law that is that is aimed at lowering drug prices. It's really easy for Biden to argue in favor of it and to say, hey, America, this is something that I did for you. And we're going to see him do a lot of that. Yes. Okay. Closing question, which we ask all of our guests, is just tell us what gives you the greatest hope and optimism. Okay. Well, last time I said young people, so I guess I don't. I don't want to repeat. Think about I got to think about something people. else. I, I last time I said young people because I see them, you know, being so interested and in, and in, and committed to change. I'm having a hard time, honestly, Steve, thinking of something else that really gives me optimism, and that's that in itself is kind of sad. <laughs> I don't know. I'm worrying about our country, about partisanship, about the environment. And I don't really see a path out except through young people who want to do something different. Who can different. change our politics. Who can change our politics, who are committed to making the world a better place, to saving the environment and the planet. So I guess, Steve, I'm just going to stick with my original well, answer. that's fine. Because that is really what gives me Some hope. Some things don't change. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cheryl, for being with us again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit CSIS.org.